Welcome to ARC Next Sessions. I'm Paul and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Our guest today is Rebecca Howard. Rebecca has recently returned back to LA after working at the New York Times, developing video content and helping to launch virtual reality at the Times. Thanks for joining us today, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Paul. So I just want to get it out there. You're not an architect and your work doesn't really focus on the architectural world, but you are a, a specialist in, in the world of uh, virtual reality and, and uh, emerging technologies, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I would say that I like to think I'm a, what is the expression? Master of, what is the expression again? Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades, trades master of none. So I'm sort of okay. an architect <laughs> in my mind because I have a background in design. But no, I'm not. But I'm a big appreciative, appreciative of architecture, of course. And um, my background is always been, it's been digital for the last 15 years, working in digital, in digital content. At the New York Times, I oversaw all of video and the strategy and marketing technology product and built the uh, infrastructure so that they could monetize and create a real business around video. And last year, I was at New Frontiers and discovered VR for the first time. And when I saw it, I was just really struck on the impact it could have in terms of telling stories that the New York Times needed to tell, stories that you could actually take someone into a place and they could really feel what it was like to be there and really create this feeling of, of empathy and, and understanding of another person's story. And so I brought it back to the New York Times and, and we figured out the business model for it and brought in Chris Milk from Verse to create projects. And because I work on all sides of this, it's not just the content, it's also how do you distribute the content. So for that, we partnered with Google so that we could get cardboard into 1.2 million people's hands by distributing it through the Sunday New York Times magazine. And then also partnered with Sundance. I'm pointing at the Sundance Film Festival 2016 <laughs> cardboard that's sitting on the table. And so the New York Times was the media partner this year at Sundance. So what I look at is sort of 360 around any kind of business around content. So it has to do with the actual making. It has to do with the distribution and the ultimate monetization. So so you said this was only a year ago that you yeah. came across this. And so, so the virtual reality initiative at New York Times, which really was, it seemed to be a huge hit. When I mean, there's so much buzz about it, and I have yet to experience it yet because I haven't actually put Don't a uh, headset Just on. Just pretend my... you know all about you it. You have to okay. subscribe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have to subscribe. Um, exactly. But that's amazing. That kind of turnaround. You know. Yeah, it was great. Ago. Well, I think right now we're at this inflection point in virtual reality where we know there's a lot of interest, and we gauge interest by we look at Silicon Valley and we see who's investing and how much money is being spent. We look at major media companies like Facebook buying. Oculus for $2.2 billion about a year and a half ago now. We look at Apple's current investments, and I could just go down the line. When you see that, you start to see that this ecosystem is developing, and there's a need to figure out now this with all this investment happening, how do you actually activate it? How do you make the content that's going to feed and continue to push and grow adoption that's going to be needed to make all these investments work? So for us with the New York Times, we were at a really great point to be able to go to Google and ask them to invest because it's not cheap, obviously, to send one point. 2 million cardboards through the New York Times magazine. But what was really interesting about it is we were taking a, a traditional medium, the newspaper itself, to transport our next, the next medium that we think is going to be this really impactful medium. And so I really loved how it all came together. And then on the cover of the Sunday magazine was the picture of the artist had taken a photograph. And that photograph was on the cover of the magazine. And the artist who took that picture was the subject of the VR piece that was distributed. Mm. So it was really, in, well, actually, I'm going to go back. That's when we actually first launched it, the actual distribution. I'm, now I'm messing up history. That's my job, I think. <laughs> make it my own. No, so the first thing we did was the Walk in New York. And then the second was the displace that came out with the cardboard. But it was just a nice sort of like using, uh, they, at the end of the day, they need a delivery device that can actually get this headset to people in order to watch the content. So we're adding another layer now where you don't have it in your pocket or you don't have it in terms of your computer. So how do they get you to adopt to buy something that you don't have already? So it was a really great opportunity for someone like Google to actually get this out there to a lot of influencers. So people did work really quickly on this. And typically these kinds of deals take a lot longer to make. But I think a lot of people were incentivized to get this going when we did it. Wow. So you mentioned we need the content. Do you think the content is really what is the most lacking in, in getting this uh, virtual reality into the mainstream um, in terms of in, in journalism? Or do you think uh, hardware still needs and, and software needs? A well, I, I would take journalism kind of out of it. I think con I think content in general needs to be made that to feed these investments that are happening in these upcoming releases that we're going to see in hardware this next year. There's three major releases happening from Oculus to Sony 
to the Vive HTC headset. And so there's this big investment in hardware. And now we need to catch up and figure out how we're going to feed the content into the hardware. So when you ask, is it necessary? I think what we need ultimately is adoption. Adoption has to happen. You need to have scale in order to create an effective monetization. So the only way you get scale is you got to get people to adopt. How do you get people to adopt? You make content that they can't live without and they're very excited by and they're willing to pay for it. So it really does always start with the storytelling and the content that's going to then feed and start to create this whole beautiful chain of success. At least that's what I'm banking on right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've definitely already seen certain genres of storytelling, first like journalism, but also pieces by the New York Times that aren't explicitly virtual reality, but more engaging in multimedia storytelling, kind of engaging with these ideas to kind of build a following already and an expectation, I think, because I would assume that most of the subscribers to the New York Times don't have the basic expectation of good journalism to include virtual realities. However, that might just be because they don't understand how valuable it can be to deliver some type of thing. And also the responsiveness of like how quick it is to create a VR experience versus a topical. It's also one of those things like until you've done it, like once you do it, it catches on like fire. So it's really that first like kind of barrier to entry, like getting people to do it the first time, which I swear, Paul, you're doing it before I leave here today. (laughs) (laughs) But like if you do it, as soon as you've done it once, then there's a lot of buy-in. You see buy-in happening very quickly. And there's a lot of examples of that. For the New York Times, the example was the amount of people that actually opened up the cardboard, took pictures of themselves and put it on Twitter. I mean, Twitter and Instagram was on fire that day. And there's actually been a retention rate as well. We've seen that people actually kept their cardboard for the next film. So they did a lot of great marketing to have to tell people, how do you use it? You should keep it. Don't throw it away, even though it looks like a box, you know, that you might have just ordered your last Amazon salt and pepper shaker in because it's small, you know, but but keep it because it's going to enable you to access this incredible content. So that's the next thing is the accessories. Well, why don't we get into the news pieces that we've been talking about on the site and how we've seen the different, both explicitly architectural and kind of more fringy architecture uses so, of VR. You guys have really been covering it. And not we that I don't been, look at your you website know. all the time, but I think I missed these. And well, it's amazing. We, you guys have been really thorough. We definitely have been covering more stories about virtual reality. And I think that's both in anticipation of this episode, but also just because it's really becoming much more newsworthy these days. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's inevitable that it's going to be permeating our industry ongoing, especially now that the Oculus is almost on the market. So anyways, let's get right into the news. Last week, Nicholas here in our office wrote a piece about the daiquiri, which I believe that's how it's pronounced, like the drink, but spelled a little differently. It's a new smart construction helmet incorporating augmented reality to help workers navigate a worksite using cameras, depth sensors, and other fancy technology including a technology called IntelliTrack, which the inventors claim can quickly process environmental inputs to allow the user to better understand their context. This feature was entitled The Augmented Reality Helmet Could Revolutionize the Construction Site. Amelia, you uh, you worked a little with, with Nicholas in editing this piece. What did you uh, take away from this? Well, I think one of the major things that dealing with VR or writing about VR is that there's this huge like excitement factor out of the gate and you kind of have to work to meter that. And so when you offer something like there's this amazing helmet that is going to like completely revolutionize, of course, you have to strip away like all of that sensationalism and just try to look at what is this technology doing and what does it offer that hasn't been offered before or does it offer something in a slightly better way that could actually have implications for better safety, better ease of access. Having never worked on a construction site, of course, my editorial understanding of that might be a little different. But I think that the more exposure we give to technologies like these, just the expectation will rise that just as we see kind of a spread of different technologies across different areas of the architecture industry, as we have things like BIM coming in and trying to kind of standardize that, technologies like these can really help us coalesce that information and and make us realize that if there are different places where information is appearing, it's best to try to condense those and create a unified system for um, referring to information, when, especially when it has to do with building standards and such. So this is something more that like, I'd love to hear what Donna and Ken think of it because yeah, like what is it like to visit a construction site and what is it like to imagine using a technology like the daiquiri? So Donna and Ken, did you have any thoughts on this? You think it's total bull hockey? (laughs) Ken probably knows more about this than I do. My only comment would be, I have been fortunate in my career to constantly work with craftsmen and builders on the job site who are really excellent. They're craftsmen. They're true, you know, they're, they're true builders, not dumb labor, which I think a lot of architects tend to categorize builders as dumb labor. 
in my mind, anything that lets the the knowledge of the craftsmen come into play on the job site so that you are respecting those craftsmen and getting their knowledge to make the project better all around for everyone. That's where I see something like this could sort of level the playing field, right? So it's not just the architect, I hold the drawings in my hand and I don't let anyone see them. I'm the one that holds all the knowledge. This to me seems like a way to maybe democratize that a little bit or, or love, yeah, level that playing field. So that to me seems great. Although I, like I said, I've been fortunate to work with really smart, wonderful, dedicated carpenters on smaller jobs. Can you have a lot more experience with larger scale construction? I, you know, I wonder if that notion of making the playing field a little more level and the knowledge more accessible to everyone, does that scare you? Because it seems like it could. I'm not terribly concerned. I think, you know, part of what I like about the business is that we're supposed to be working for the benefit of the the client and anything that helps aid that particular individual in producing a product that meets the needs of, of the client and solves the problems on site. It could reduce some potential issues. It could see the, maybe the helmet, you know, I think the article talks about some interference and checks that you can make on site as you're looking at the project in, in virtual reality, seeing what's the next steps in the construction process and maybe catching something that the architect didn't because they didn't have that particular view. But now that somebody's on site, they could see it and be in that space. So connecting it with the BIM is important. I think the other thing, which was, is kind of nice on a much more complicated or complex projects is um, the element of, uh, I think, maybe the heads-up display. So some of the augmented reality might come into play um, with safety issues. So maybe there are some unforeseen conditions that the helmet could um, perhaps alert the wearer or the, the, the person wearing the helmet about some conditions that may affect some safety issues. So I think it's I think it's generally a good thing. I think with all of this technology, anything that takes, you know, puts more responsibility on somebody else, it's it's often the problem is that there's this implicit or this kind of understanding that there's there isn't a need for communication. And I think that there's actually more need for communication rather than less. I think that because you've been enhanced, I think the communication needs to be enhanced as well. Yeah, one of the other things that we should make sure to mention about this technology is that it is not virtual reality, it's an augmented reality system. System. And what I find interesting about things like this, especially in the user experience department, it's like this is a giant helmet that is like it's quite it's big. It's like a, it doesn't cover like down to the chin, but I think it's like has a full visor, kind of like a motorcycle helmet. And I just remember when we first started reporting on things like Google Glass and people were just outraged at how dorky it looked and how like impe- how the impediment that it gave the person wearing it to achieve this level of augmented reality. So I think there's something going on that's a little bit that that, that shows like a specific kind of phase shift in how we're receiving these different types of technologies that for whatever reason, the augmented reality of Google Glass and probably the price tag changed people's understanding of who it was for and how it could be used. But I imagine like this kind of technology in another scenario was basically another pipe dream of the Google Glass, that the Google Glass could have been able to do things like this. Exactly. I've seen this as exactly the same as the Google Glass. I mean, I think the concept and the technology and the idea behind this is inevitable and it has a ton of potential, but the way that it's going to be executed has yet to be determined. And I'm I'm not convinced that this helmet is necessarily the vehicle in which we're going to be bringing this kind of technology. Well, it seems like the helmet's only only there if you're at a construction site. That's the point of being yeah. able to have something embedded in your helmet that's easy to put on and then be able to create, which AR does as a layer in front of your eyes, giving you more information about the real image that you're really looking at so that you can then have two things side by side. So you have like the regulation numbers that you're supposed to hit, but then you have the reality and then you can quickly kind of go back and forth. I think what the major disruptor will be is when Magic Leap is released. And that's a very, very different way of delivering that technology where the actual technology is shooting a beam into your eye that's then projecting this image. So the processor is your brain, not this actual helmet and all this other gear that you're wearing. And then with that, we'll start to see much more sleeker eyewear and things. So I do, I, I would disagree. I would think it will end up going more towards Google Glass, but in a much less disruptive way in terms of what's on your face. And it'll be more like just the glasses you have on right now, Paul, will be AR potential glasses, according to the Magic Leap delivery of it. And the other thing I was just going to mention, I think in terms of, I'm glad you brought this, this up, that it's not VR. And I think in VR, the potential is with clients, I would think, and from what I'm reading, is to be able to show them an actual executed version of what they're going to be buying from you and what the design is going to be giving them. And I think when we show video or we show models, it's really hard to show things like lighting and it's hard to show sound. Like what is sound going to sound like behind you when somebody walks in on the kitchen in the kitchen? 
in? Because obviously sound is that you had, I think, did you have an episode about it? You told me about having an episode about sound and how architects need to think more about that when they're designing their spaces. Oh, yeah, that was a recent other interview we had with Michael Kimmelman about a piece that he did for the Times of talking about architectural sound. Yeah, see sense. how I just did that? I promoted a New York Times. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but yeah, so, I, so, I plugged it, don't so, worry. So, but I think it's really interesting in terms of being able to show that visual. I mean, you guys are all about showing a visualization of an image. And when you talk about kind of having even talking to your carpenters or whatever their whatever level of expertise they are, there's always communication breakdown. We know that with everybody. Like, oh, I thought he meant, I knew what he, I meant when I said I wanted a shiny, you know, I anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to like try and pretend I know what you guys actually say, but <laughs> I do, I do, but I do think when it's, when it's expressed itself within VR, there's, it's fairly clear what everybody's talking about. And so there's an ability to really be in that environment. And in terms of proportion and scale, which are things that sometimes hard for people to understand in a 2D environment, whether or not that's video or drawing, once it's in 3D in this way, place you can actually move around, proportion and scale is communicated in a way that it's never been able to do before, from what I can tell. And I would think that that's a, hu you know, a huge part of being able to express the ideas that you have and how you're building for clients. Absolutely. And I think that leads to a couple other similar news stories that we that we recently uh, reported on about how different firms are using virtual reality as opposed to augmented reality with this helmet in in ways. One story is about the LHB Corporation, a Minneapolis firm. Ken, are you familiar with them? Yes. Okay. So they're incorporating VR into the design process and offering a new way to present their work to the clients. I think this is the most obvious application of virtual reality in the architecture workplace. And I think we've all been anticipating this for a long time. And the most annoying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it seems like it seems like with the way the technology is moving along at a pretty fast pace and, and the, you know, the new hardware and software that's that's uh, being released now, this is quickly going to become the new norm in, in architecture offices. So we also wrote about another firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by the name of Toy Kubis. That also uses another similar type of VR platform. It's a cloud-based platform called Revizio. And, and basically, they're both using this software to be able to offer their clients a much more intimate experience and view of the designs that they're creating for them. It's also a huge, seems like a huge value add for the company. Like if you're looking at, if you're shopping around for architecture firms and you're like to redo your bathroom or something. Exactly. And someone is like, ooh, I have a VR system. Annoying. And you've never, you totally can. But if you, so if you've never used a VR and, and your architect suddenly says, here, I'm going to let you see your bathroom beforehand. Like that's a huge selling point. What's the annoying yeah, part? Yeah, what's the annoying then? part? A couple of things, because it, it's a new arms race. I mean, look, the first arms race was, in my mind, I mean, hand drawing was, you know, done for a long time. But the first element of that was the digitizer that they used to have back in the early 70s and 80s. Then it was AutoCAD was the new thing. That arms race sped everybody up. So it starts to eliminate. And AutoCAD won. AutoCAD won. And you got, now you're on to Revit. And then we got the, the 3D printers. All the architecture firms went out and bought 3D printers. And nobody's doing anything with those. <laughs> I mean, the small 3D printers, the maker bots and stuff like that. They, there was this promise of building models for people and showing them stuff. People are just making pipes. Yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> making pipes and, and stands for their business cards. So now we have this next level, which is this new arms race, which is which is the V, which is the Oculus Rift, and and you know I would rather them use it for their own benefit first, that not like present it as a as an added value to the client, because now it forces all the other firms to add something to so they cannot be the the old firm on the block. And I'm not sure that the I think Donna has his point was pointing this out that. On something um, that I don't think there's, I think on the on the website, how the idea that the client is going to get some added value out of this is, I think, is false. Do you think it has value internally, just in terms of your design has, process? Yeah, absolutely. I think inside my office, if I was if if I was at my firm, we had this tool, I would be using it all the time. I would try to understand the model on the project because we're working in BIM, and I would try to understand those things internally so I could present something. That I understand. So now we've got this to the client, and now the client is look. The client already micromanages our lives anyway. Exactly. So now they're going to make it that much more problematic because they're going to say, you know, I really don't like how that light hits that corner. Well, then I have to explain to them, well, it, it, it's not perfectly rendered, or you know, I don't like the way that brick looks. It's it's a rendering, and I have to go and explain. And I, and that level of detail to explain to a client is just it's a it's going to be more of a time suck 
for architecture firms, and it's going to be a waste. And all these terms, I mean, fortunately, the, the, the Oculus Rift is only about $600, so it's a, it's a much more manageable risk to take. But as a marketing tool to, to kind of pull in clients, to kind of give them, first off, like we can all see right now, it creates this kind of vertigo. So I got a client spinning around, all of a sudden the projectile vomiting across the room because that, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know if it's the space that they're projectile vomiting about. It does seem like internally, though, there'd be a lot of use in oh. terms of being able to see how things are, are working. And I think that we were, I sent Paul some information from this recent Goldman Sachs analyst study on, on VR and what it, the potential disruptions. And one of the main points they make is the real estate industry, because we all know how many realtors are out there on commission, and that's going to be disrupted pretty quickly with people now shopping for their rentals and purchases on, you know, looking at VR versus having to have someone like my brother in New York drag them around yeah. 10 different apartments. I mean, and- if you could go into an agent's office and put on an Oculus and, and look at 50 apartments in, in an hour, I mean, that's that's going to make a There's nothing big- more depressing than going out and looking for play, even when you're buying a house and you show up and you look at the house, you're like, this is not at all. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of time. like two hours of my life and now I'm depressed and I've got so, a cocktail. Like it's a whole. Yeah. So spiral. now, I mean, you could at least narrow down those 50 that you look at into 10 that look good right. in VR. But going back to your point, Ken, I don't know if I'm completely convinced because the thing is, is. I mean, architects are trained to be able to understand 3D space and visualize 3D space. But a lot of clients have such a hard time visualizing their spaces as presented in in 2D. It seems like it would be a great opportunity to to have them experience that space in a way that they're not able to on their own, using their own imagination. You would think that. You would think that. But in all honesty, the truth of the matter is, is that I've never heard a client say, I don't understand what you're saying. Explain that to me. I can't visualize. But most of the clients that, that I've that I've seen respond to hand. So a lot of times we take our drawings and we'll simplify, we'll dumb it, we'll give these really slick renderings, really polished look, and they're satisfied with that. Like meaning like once it's built, you don't hear people saying this is not at all what I expected this to no, be. No, even, even then when we're presenting something at a presentation at a client meeting, we'll have interior designers there will have the whole design team there and they're running through all of the materials on the floor so they get to see it firsthand like what that carpet looks like what that tile pattern looks like they see it and they'll see really great renderings and they'll see hand sketches they'll see all a full this panoply of kind of information and never once do i really hear them say i I just don't understand the space and i'm not saying that doesn't happen but in my experience it happens a lot actually and they just they can't understand it but to me and again coming from the world of doing custom residential work where I'm working in a very intimate relationship with a client. My concern and my comment on this article on the website was that, yeah, it, it doesn't show them too much. Do you, are you really revealing too much of what they're going to get? And they're going to try to micromanage it. But in my, again, in my experience, I have gotten to a personal relationship with the clients, usually to the point where I can say, trust me. And it's built on that relationship. They know that I'm going to produce something that will make them happy because I've already done, you know, some work for them previously or something. So they don't need to see all of that tiny bit of detail. And I have frequently had problems where I'll do a rendering that's like a massing drawing, just showing this is about how big it's going to be. And they immediately say, oh, is it going to be that color though? Like they nitpick the details like you would not believe. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with, I think the problem is that as an architect, you would be showing the client way too much because with virtual reality, you're giving complete control to the client over, over what they're choosing to look at and how they want to look at it. And it may not be presented, it may not be ready for them to, to look at, exactly. you know, certain, certain details. And just still a model at the end of the day, like you're not shooting yeah. right. the actual building. So it's still a model. And so there's like to her point, like if it's the wrong color or the wrong, you know, and you haven't rendered the whole 360 because right. you didn't have the time or you didn't, mm-hmm. how much you're going to spend on actually making a really lifelike model in 3D. In well, if you have enough that. unpaid interns. <laughs> yeah, to me, it brings up the, the whole issue of the uncanny valley that we've discussed before on the show of like, whenever you're modeling some type of any type of thing in reality, that a certain level of abstraction is preferable to approaching that weird space right before realism, like pure realism. Because it's the same thing in the, yeah. Yeah. As soon as you get, no, but as soon as you get to that point, then exactly, Donna, the clients are going to be like, well, I don't like, but that color, but they're, they're far less willing to suspend their disbelief to, to get to the overall point and are much more likely to become obsessed with the more apparent details. Right. 
Well, and then they become what happens ultimately. What happens is is that the the higher the quality of the rendering, the more they're married to the rendering than they are to the reality. So what happens is is that they start to fall in love with the thing that they have on their head. So they're immersed in this environment. They love that more than what's actually built. But they're looking at a, at a particular moment in time. They're not even looking at it across a, a timeline necessarily. Right, right. Like, you know, the light changes over the over the mm. 15 minutes I'm in a space. So they're not getting that perspective. And when they get there, they may get to that. You know, it's like a photograph. You get people who have these awful looks in a photograph, but you forget that that photograph was taken in a millisecond and that the real reaction is best seen in reality standing there. And then you're going, well, that's not that bad. So when they get to the building and they see the building in reality, I thought that brick was a little lighter because it was that way in the rendering. Well, I wonder if a lot of these same conversations were happening when just 3D modeling started entering the the workforce. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, but what's interesting to me about that is I'm seeing now the rendering techniques that people are putting up, like for the PS1 and those kinds of things. Especially last year, there's a movement back to these sort of cartoony, hand-drawn, you know, clearly not perfectly rendered Mm. real images. Yeah, just like any new visual media art form, it's going to become going through phases of realism to abstraction to, yeah, illustration or so. I was just going to say, Rebecca, you're not an architect, but I I hope you're not taking from this conversation that we don't hold our clients in high regard because we're saying, you know, oh, don't show them too much. Hopefully you'll work with an architect one day and you will have a level of trust with them. No, I I equate it a lot to the film industry, actually, because there's a lot of times where you have to show a cut Uh to whether or not it's a producer or whether or not usually it's a producer and to show where you're at in a project. And we always really belabor that question amongst the creators to say, at what point should we really show it? Like, we want to show it soon enough in case we're not, you know, really, there's some real notes we need to get back that we won't be able to change later. But at the same time, we're afraid that even if we sit there and tell them before we show them the piece, like, don't look at the color correction. It hasn't been colored. Like, this last part, the guy's in his underwear, but he's going to have clothes on, (laughs) whatever it is. And then the next thing you know, they obsess on those pieces. So I I think in, you know, any kind of creative process, there's always that, you know, question when you're not completely finished and you're trying to communicate to what the final thing is. So I get it. So before we move on, I just have a question, Rebecca, for you. Do you think we're at the point yet where realistically an architect could give an Oculus Rift to a client and have them experience like what it really feels like to be in the space? I mean, like visually, just are we there technologically? I mean, if the space is completed and you're filming it live action, 100%. If it's not complete and you're doing a visualization, it, it really, a visualization it, it, it just depends on, the, on the, the strength of your CGI artists that can actually render that. But yeah, there's amazing artists out there. It's just so expensive to do that. So it's the, so it's, it comes down to the, uh, the level of detail in the, in the model, but what about the technology, like there, moving around the there space? Are new, I mean, however, there are new technologies every day. Like when I was at Sundance recently, I met this German firm that's doing with, they're taking photographs of interior space and they're able to then stitch it all together and you're able to move around in that space, which is kind of incredible. So basically you can create a background plate of any scene. Like I could come here and shoot this and photography, this beautiful room that we're in right now, this podcast room, and then I can insert whoever I want in here and move that around. So there there are going to continue to be tools that are going to make everything, the barrier to entry, a lot easier to do. But right now it's still fairly expensive. But I imagine that that will change. And I would, I would say, yes, you could do that. But again, that's that's actually not your example because that's a real, this this room is here. So mm-hmm. from visualization point of view, it's all about CGI and that's just expensive. Okay. But I do think tools in terms of one of the other things I saw at Sundance, there was um, Oculus Story Studio that does a lot in animation. They have a lot of people from Pixar that are now working there to develop new stories to tell in virtual reality with animation. They developed a tool called the Quill where you can actually, they gave it to their illustrator and they can actually draw within the VR environment. And we watched her do it. It was really incredible. She had her headset on. And she had the um, remotes. The controller. Controllers. Thank you. The controllers in her hand. And you could see her painting. It was kind of incredible to watch her. It was like watching an, a ballerina or something because she's moving around in the space, but she's actually drawing these beautiful drawings that are going to then be put together for this film called Angelica that's going to come out later in the year. But when you look at that tool and you see what you could potentially do with that tool, and then you also have Oculus creating, I think it's called Toy, Stu- Toy which is another program where you can actually pick 
things up and move them in the frame. Mm -hmm. All these things together seem to me that, you know, you guys are just getting excited about these architectural programs, but you'll be able to potentially design within the VR environment yeah. itself. I mean, imagine taking your client into a room and, and just moving the window or or changing the, but even uh, like the, for you the as placement a creator, of the wall. Like being in that environment yourself and like figuring out how you want mm -hmm. this to look and how do I move things around and being able to really play with it in that space is going to really be interesting to see what kind of architects are going to take to that and if it works for them or not. That's exciting because I thought about that a long time ago. It'd be great to have a VR headset where I can actually pick up a steel beam and start erecting my own work <laughs> and having, you know, instead of building with, with digital lines, I'm actually building with, you know, these uh, virtual objects. I'm putting things together how I want to see it. And then I can build a set of construction documents off of what I've virtually constructed. That's coming for sure. Yeah. Like a higher fidelity Minecraft. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've spoken so much about how VR is not just a imitation of reality, but it is often a creation of reality. So we can go both directions of depicting a space as we know it to have already existed. Say if we wanted to do a scan of this podcasting room and then be projecting it into a VR space that then someone else could interact with, or the other way around where you're creating from computer-generated imagery a space that does not yet, yet exist. And one of the other stories that we reported on recently on the site from also from Nicholas, who's kind of our like unofficial VR beat head, he went and talked to Emblematic Group, which is a VR media journalism in uh, Santa Monica that focus on re not recreations, they shy away from the term recreations, but they represent through computer generated VR experiences, known instances throughout history and particular ones of recent journalistic um, interest. One of the things that they've done recently is bombing attacks in Syria, as well as the Trayvon Martin shooting. They take actual media from those experiences. Um, in the case of the Trayvon Martin shooting, they used 911 phone calls that had been recorded, as well as the floor plans of the apartments that Martin was shot in, or the apartment complex that he was located in when he was shot. They used materials like that to recreate a scenario to then insert a viewer or an experiencer or whatever the term is to put on a VR headset. I think, I believe you using Oculus Rift uh, to put on the headset, or actually, no, I think it's their own bespoke thing. Anyway, to put on the headset and experience what it was like to be in that scene. The person doesn't have agency, but they do experience, because they're within a scene that, of course, they weren't historically, they do experience an unprecedented level of empathy with the scenario. So it's much the the hope of, of a group like, like Emblematic Group, which is headed by Michael Licht and um, journalist Nani de la Peña, who's known for her work in VR. The hope is to kind of extend that empathetic ability of VR. And it's not that they want to do that for any particular end. They just recognize that the strengths of VR can do that. So for journalism, it has a lot of power that is not necessarily good or bad at this point, but it needs to be recognized. And for experiencing certain events, of course, it can have strong legal implications of you know, not just recreating scenarios or recreating potential crimes, but just better understanding how we implicate people in certain things and how we make assumptions about how people act based on what they're saying or how so. So I think this is a really interesting feature that Nicholas put together with Emblematic Group. And I just, I mean, you can go on the site and see some of the computer generated imagery and, and videos that they put together to recreate these scenarios. Really quite fascinating. But yeah, what did you guys think of this? Did you have a chance to look through it? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. You brought, I'm glad you came back to this topic because it was at the beginning and I thought we were going to breeze by it. But just today on the New York Times website, because I am a subscriber, <laughs> I do have a headset, just so you know, there was a post about a drone, a Russian uh, filmmaker who has a drone who uh, captured video of a Syrian city, homes. So he has this uh, flyover and he's really getting all of the images of homes back to people who don't have a real understanding of what the devastation was like over there. So this adds, and I thought, wow, what a great way of telling the story about what the refugees had to deal with by seeing this devastated city. So it really, talking about that empathy gap, this really kind of brings it home when you can actually see things on a battlefield that you don't get to see, in a, you know, because media kind of is taken out of the picture and we have this reality, not a VR. I mean, it is a, you know, virtual reality, but it's a reality of a situation that's real. So I thought it was uh, very interesting. And I think that's one of the things that Emblematic Group is so careful to put out there, that they're not saying that these are recreating or actually purely representative of any reality, because, of course, Every kind of media representation has its own narrative bent and it's it can you cannot recreate the reality that it was. So they recognize that no matter how much they appeal to a completely unbiased perspective, just by inserting someone who was not there into a scenario that has been recreated, 
through computer generated, mostly through game engines, I believe is how they would actually fabricate these things, then it's still going to have some kind of bias. And it's not something that is necessarily like a partisan thing. It just can't can't necessarily be labeled easily. But it's important to remember that in experiencing these things, it's not an actual, it, it can never be a fully accurate representation of reality or history for that matter. Yeah, that, that's an interest, such an interesting topic. I think that with documentary filmmakers who are working in virtual reality, it's really challenging for them because on the one hand, we always say like the minute you put your lens on something, you're an editor because you've edited whatever's not in the picture. But in VR, you're obviously seeing everything. So you're really being honest to, to what's around you. You can't hide anything. But on the other hand, to set that up can be complicated. And you may, if, you have, if you're a filmmaker and you've set something up and it's not necessarily working the first time or you need people to do it again, you've just crushed any credibility you have of being a filmmaker in the documentary space. So there are challenges that doc filmmakers are having. And I've heard, I won't say what films, but heard stories where I've watched films that were really moving and amazing to me. And I find out that the voiceover actually wasn't the person that I thought I was looking at, that they had recorded that later. And things like that can really mess with what you're talking about in terms of really calling something documentary journalism. However, it's great that you can go out and express that Noni can express what she thinks the rendering should look like based on, I mean, this is happening in a real time and place that she's able to go look at. She can then recreate that street that he was walking down pretty exactly because there's a lot of photographs that she can take from. And she's choosing an animation style, like you said, that's not trying to show that she's trying to depict reality. It's definitely a, a version, a filtered reality. But I do find it interesting. I think there's a company called Riot. It's R-Y-O-T. And they are a new media company that's doing incredible work in VR in the documentary space. And it's founded by humanitarians. And every article you read, there's a call to action button where you press and it tells you where you can contribute or volunteer to be helpful in this whatever cause is related to what you're reading. The films they've done are so incredible. There's a film they did about a young girl in Africa to highlight the problems that are happening there in terms of what families need to do to get water, to get education. And they watch her throughout her day walking to school. And you're with this young girl on her journey. I guarantee you, like if I really dug into that, I'm sure there were plenty of things they reset, plenty of things they had to go in and, and change. They, they, had, they wanted to show the problem with people cooking in shacks, for example, and how there's all these smoke inhalation issues. So they got into the shack. I'm sure there were issues. I still think it's so important that they told that story. And when they go and take this to events to try and translate that into donations, it's like almost 100% conversion rate because you're in this experience and it's really impacting you and there's no getting away from this impact. But for pure journalism, it's, it is a really challenging medium to work in. But there, the New York Times did a piece in Paris right after the bombings. It was amazing, like just to be there in that moment. So they're really good at going in and they can get access to places that no one else can. They can get the trust of citizens like no other place can. So they've got this incredible ability to go in and really kind of show you, like you were just saying, Ken, like a, something like the drones over Syria and be able to really take you to that place. I was just uh, quickly going to reference, I mean, the, the, this, uh, the ethical versus journalistic kind of integrity issues uh, kind of transcends technology too. I mean, as we've seen recently with the Making a Murderer documentary, there's been a lot of controversy about that because people have empathized with this person that we, that could be, I mean, there's always a little creative license taken by the journalist or the documentarian that may not be telling the whole story. And the same thing with, with the uh, virtual reality, like we know what happened in, within a news story, but we don't necessarily know everything that happened within the context of that space. And that space is being depicted. It, it gets to a really interesting conversation about what it is to be human and to live in a physical body. Because when I watched the emblematic group's uh, Trayvon Martin recreations, they use the actual 911 recordings. So you're hearing something that is absolutely authentic, but you're watching or sort of, it's just a little sample they put on the website that you're watching or seeing these clearly rendered, you know, people moving in the apartment, peeking out the window as they make the phone call. I heard something, I heard a shot, you know, it's, I found it very difficult to watch because those recordings were real. And there's a book called Super Sense, I think it's Super Sense by Bruce Wood, where he talks about the object of a, in his case, he uses the famous example of a, um, a sweater that he says this was worn by a serial killer. Would you put it on? He asked that question. Would you touch this authentic object? Now, in his case, it's not actually the authentic sweater. What kind of sweater is it? It's a cardigan. I think it's green. People, we have as humans a belief in a material reality, right? That certain material objects hold a, a nuance or a sensation of the event that happened. So 
is there a way in virtual reality to, you know, and sorry, going back to the completely boring notion of showing a client a space, if you give them a brick, an actual brick, and they hold it in their hand and you say, okay, now look at the brick wall in in the virtual reality headset, that's the brick you're seeing. Is that, you know, is there some connection to that physical authenticity? Yeah, it reminds me a bit what you're talking about. There's conversation happening in the VR creative world about whether or not we're making films that are first-person perspective, first-person POV, or we're we're bystanders watching a story. It feels like from the films that I'm very interested in and the films that I'm actually working on right now, they are first-person POV where they're putting you in the position of certain character as you're moving through a story. And I think that's a really powerful and new way to tell stories that isn't doing what you were talking about where we take the old style, the old medium, and we try and jam it into this new medium and we try and tell narrative stories like we've always told narrative stories. So I do think that's probably something you're experiencing when you're watching that versus being a character within that is a very different experience. And I think it'll be interesting to see how filmmakers and storytellers will continue to evolve, you know, with those sort of two different ways of whether or not you're a protagonist and you're really in the story and watching these things happen or you're standing by. I think some filmmakers have done really interesting work where they've told the same story, but from the perspective of four different people. There's a woman, Rose Trochet, who had a great piece at Sundance, and it's four different perspectives of the same exact story. And that's really fascinating. Like, who doesn't want to, like, I'd love to sit in policy right now and see what he's, like, thinking and <laughs> looking at. Um, but it's a, it's a great opportunity to kind of to, to do that. I think we're all we're all interested in that. I think that's it's a fascinating way to tell. So I think we'll start to see really interesting uh, storytelling mechanisms that'll develop because of what you're experiencing in terms of the detachment versus the engagement. One of the earliest instances I heard of media companies like Pixar putting together VR experiences purely for narrative storytelling. They did this one short piece, one in particular that I thought was interesting was a recreation of a speech that Bill Clinton had made where you hear him telling it to you in the Oval Office. So you are transported into the Oval Office and you are sitting down with Bill Clinton and he's speaking at you. You can't inter- you can't speak with him. You cannot interact with him, but you can look around the Oval Office. You can like kind of get a little bit of depth. So you can like look closer or kind of fall back. You can also just choose to not pay attention to anything he's saying. But basically that when you invest in a type of VR experience that gives the person the power of point of view, you're also investing in their very human ability to decide to opt out, to be like, this isn't interesting to me, or just like many bystanders in reality might do, choose to ignore it. And I think that experience doesn't make it less valuable. If you go into it and you understand that people are going to react that way, it not only gives you valuable valuable feedback for how these experiences should be orchestrated, but also shows you how difficult it is to get people to be empathetic enough in a scenario and depict it in a way that affects them in a way to where they actually change their behavior. So with this Trayvon Martin thing and with the other instances that Emblematic Group works in, I think that they're doing a really valuable service, but they're also really understanding how difficult it is to tread in these recreated perspectives. I mean, of course, you don't, especially as a documentarian, you're never saying you're, you can ever speak for someone else directly, but you're trying to create the opportunity to at least give other people the choice of how much they can engage with that. I find it absolutely fascinating. Which I guess is kind of the nature of virtual reality. I mean, it, it really is giving giving users so much more control over what how they want to experience something. Yeah, they love to use the word agency. VR filmmakers <laughs> giving somebody agency. Architects love yeah. that word. Do you guys too. use that too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, yeah, it's like definitely the buzzword. Which I'm kind of happy it's moved on from content to agency. But yeah, I do think that we're going to see a lot of evolution in terms of what you're what you can do once you're in the experience in terms of interactivity and choices, whether or not you're picking things up, whether or not you're opening doors. And I think we all got burnt early on on the kind of choose your own adventure idea when that came out, whatever that was like eight years ago. And no, everyone's like, what? No one wanted to do it. And I think now we're going to get back into it, but in a, from a new from a new angle. And what I'm excited to see is sort of this world of technologists working with filmmakers in this way that we've never really seen. I mean, we've seen it with Avatar, certainly, I'm not going to say there hasn't already been this connection, but I think it's even going to, it's going to be really interesting to see how they work together to develop these storytelling devices. One of the other uh, uses of VR that we haven't really delved into so far yet is more of a not a recreation of a certain type of reality, but a substitute for reality entirely. We had a news post recently about an artist, Torsten Wiedemann, who spent 48 hours in a continuous VR experience. The experience was programmed by his kind of partner in the art project who set up a bunch of different phases of uh, experiences for him to go through that, you know, made it a little bit less manageable to deal with 48 hours of wearing a headset and, you know, using the bathroom and eating and sleeping and all this in full and virtual reality. And after the experience, um, he basically 
proclaimed, this is possible. You know, we can experience VR in long periods of time and sustain it. And it is not totally debilitating. Of course, I'm sure many people would disagree with him on that. But it is a fascinating experience. And they, in the article, it goes through a few of the different programs. This artist was put through various games, various recreated rooms that he could do certain activities in based on other kind of classic uh, virtual reality scenarios, like playing games or interacting in social scenarios or such like that. Totally hilarious experience too, because of course the artist is wearing, of course, a pink onesie and is in a somewhat public space. So people could come and like watch him, (laughs) kind of like the man in the bubble. Did you guys think this was just like totally wacky and absurd? Or do you think there's something kind of valuable in this uh, guinea pig experience? I think in terms of storytelling, there's a lot of conversation right now about the length of not only what people will tolerate to watch, but how to even carry a story in VR, obviously, even for the things that you were talking about earlier, Ken, in terms of like the render, so much work you need to do to kind of tell a story in 360 for a long period of time. There's a lot that goes into that. And then how you actually drive a story. So in storytelling, the director is so used to having the tools of editing and the tools of composition. And now that's really changing in terms of how they guide somebody through a particular experience. And so people are, that's not the reason why they're keeping things short. They're keeping things short because there's is difficulty in terms of nausea levels and vertigo and things that people experience if they're in it too long. So when you told me about that story, I thought that's the first thing I thought of is that's that's interesting because as we're going to see that evolve, that ability as they're working on the ways to make the um, headsets more sophisticated so that it me- it's able to like guide your eyes and your brain and keep everything intact so you don't have what they call this. I guess there's this idea when you start getting a little bit like disoriented, it goes back to our caveman brain and our caveman brain back in, you know, the olden caveman days, I like to call it, if you (laughs) ate something that was poisonous, you would obviously get dizzy. And then when you got dizzy, the reaction was not was you would throw up. And so now if you've got something that's making you feel a little bit dizzy, your body interprets that as poison, and it makes you want it. Pearl. So they have a lot to figure out there, but to like, a, you know, really going back into the, you know, the caveman brain and figuring out how do we recalibrate and make sure that the body isn't, isn't processing this and as something that's not a good experience for you. Well, I remember there was an experiment that was done a few years ago. This uh, scientist put on these some kind of goggles or glasses, some, some lenses that inverted everything. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. everything was oh, wow. upside down. Mm. And I think he wore these for a week. And after, oh a, after a certain amount of time, which I think was only maybe a day, his brain adapted to it and everything became normal to him. What? And then it, it took the same amount of time after he took these glasses off to become accustomed at, back to reality. This is a super famous story. And it was, I mean, when I was in grade school, this experiment happened. Oh, okay. So happened. maybe it was more than a couple of years ago. We'll yeah. have to look for it and put it in the show notes. But yeah, everything was upside down, took glasses off, everything. Yeah. So the moral of the story is basically your brain can adapt to alternative realities. It's just, I, I would be interested, I'm, I'm more interested than this story in particular, which I see as more of kind of a performance art piece, than I would be to find out, um, you know, what really, how long somebody can comfortably tolerate the well, virtual the other reality. Well, the other thing that's interesting that actually relates to the architecture space is that part of what's happening is these filmmakers are experimenting in terms of proportion and scale, like how far should the camera be away from uh, the subject that you're shooting and how quickly can the camera move if it's moving forward or backwards or up or down. So there's this rate of acceleration that has to be really looked at because if you're if you're moving one direction, the camera's moving another direction, that's what makes you feel a little bit wobbly. So they're really experimenting with these very like technical, like what is the rate of acceleration that your body can take? What is the, wh- how far away, should, like I already mentioned that the camera, should, should it be? And I think this early experimentation is going to solve problems for people that are going to be using this in other ways. And this is what these filmmakers are developing right now. The camera rigs are just being developed they are not in the marketplace, really. A GoPro has one, I guess. But like, even if you get one in your hands, if you don't know how to use it and you don't know how to you know, be able to figure out scale, their storytelling doesn't work. And we'll, neither will it for using it for any of these reasons we're talking about for architecture. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves as well. It was funny when I um, brought the, the Google device from uh, the, the Google Cardboard? New York Times. Yeah. yeah, the Google Cardboard. I brought it to work. And I, one thing I was lamenting is it didn't have a head strap so I could actually walk around with it. <laughs> <laughs> because every every time I put my face on it, I, I wanted to stand up and move around. I mean, my I just physically wanted to move around. So I'm thinking about like... Well, you got to throw down a hundred bucks and get the Samsung oh. VR headset. How does that allow you to move around? 
Well, you don't move. It right. straps to your head. Well, you, you, you oh, don't, you, but you never, with, with Vive, there'll be other headsets that come out that you actually do physically walk within your space, which will also be interesting for for architecture. But for Oculus, those experiences are, design, experiences are designed for you to be sitting still. And if you want to go parade around your office because you think that looks cool, you can definitely do that because that's that's fun to do. But in terms of um, the headset itself, I know what you're saying, though. Kind of seriously, like you don't want to hold this thing up for even seven minutes. So it's nice to have the headset and also the headset, the, the experience is very different than looking at it through cardboard. The rendering, the color, everything is, is more is more more beautiful. But it's hard because a lot of us early adopter types tend to gravitate towards iOS phones. And those of us that have iOS, iOS phones and we want to go buy a Gear VR, which is the new, which was Samsung's headset that came out this last year for $99. That's cool. But guess what? It's operated by a Samsung. And I have to go then buy a Samsung for $600 and then run, a, I have to run a plan. And then, of course, I buy the iPad that Samsung makes me buy while I'm there because I'm like that. <laughs> so now I have all these different devices. And it's really, it's so clunky in terms of that distribution uh, right now. So it is a little bit weird in well, terms of that. Not, not much longer, though, because last week in Apple's uh, quarterly earnings call, they did mention that they're investing a lot in virtual reality, which is going to be interesting to see how Apple. Yeah, they're uh, not usually first, but they're usually the best yeah. and that's what yes. they will do and it, we've been following like it's funny in my in my sphere like people will email like you know they'll be on the apple site and like look at they're looking for a vr technician I'm like oh my god they're building a vr it was, it's been really top secret but obviously not top I mean, people find out about it but apple for sure will get into it and that will change a lot as well i'm very much eagerly awaiting to see what what they do because they really have mastered taking existing technologies and doing it right. I mean, that's 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 the history. I don't know if that's a post-Jobs kind of legacy that Cook, uh, Cook is is bringing about, but when I see things like the the Oculus and the the helmet and and these things, it just it all it all seems Facebook, interesting. But, I think but Facebook is bigger. Facebook yeah. has a much larger user base across multiple platforms, and they own Oculus, so it's just interesting <laughs> to see like what they're going to do in terms of obviously the competition between Apple and Facebook is one you know, one kind of Greek mythology, you know, for Greek mythology stories, but like, you know, they will push it and they have a lot of strength to push it. So I'm really interested to see how this battle kind and of And they have a lot of the up. content. That, they have the that, content. Going back to the, one they of They completely have the content. Yeah. I mean, the New York Times had to make a deal with Facebook and now recently with a- with Apple because we can't rely on our publishers, can't rely on their own platforms anymore to to be able to lift the content. They have to put it where people are going and people are going. And places where social. people are seeing ads because now, well, now with ad blockers, it's like, you can't exactly. even make any money exactly. showing the content on, yeah. on your own so, website. So basically, we just predicted the, that all future VR content will only be accessible via Facebook. Is that, <laughs> is that the ending and product that we're working? The very depressing Instapaper on... I, I think I think ultimately it's going to be driven by the phone. And I, don't, I think the headsets, they'll... There'll be many solutions to headsets, and the headsets will accommodate multiple operating systems. But I do think ultimately the phone will will run it, and whatever's winning on the phone will win. And if Facebook is still, and we all know, like you open up on your phone, what is your first? I mean, I I don't know. You've four apps that you look at every day. <laughs> no one looks at more than those, and so mm-hmm. Facebook is probably one of them. And, and it has such win. a such a. I mean, there's no other website that has such a strong social and intimate component as Facebook, you know, with, with your friends and family, there is a lot of potential to bring in virtual reality into that, that space. Black Mirror episode. Well, the other thing is, is that you're, <laughs> you'll be in your headset and you'll actually have your social interactions within your headset. So you'll have Facebook stream happening here onto one side of your headset and you'll be able to actually have your desktop at some point. I mean, I think that's where it's going. I also think, again, with Magic Leap, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in these spaces as well. So I can give people an actual thumbs up instead of, well, they're not doing that anymore anyway. So no more likes. (laughs) There's really only one other news post that we wanted to talk about today. And I think we might work towards it. In fact, Rebecca, you kind of alluded to it before of just talking about the cavemen vision um, Mm -hmm. that I was really thought that was really interesting to come up with. I have to give a little bit of a disclaimer before talking about this news post because it refers to a study that is in no way proven. It has not been replicated. It's very much just like on the fringy. And it was done over a decade ago, I believe, initially. But um, it's something that has kind of been cropping up in multiple reportings about VR. I believe it came up. uh, We reported on it when, well, let me just say what the post is about. 
this woman named Dana Boyd, who is now um, a well-renowned person in the world of in, in media in general, she, as a bachelor student at Brown in computer science, did a study about whether or not VR systems at that time, which mostly had to do with the cave technology, which was this kind of primitive, no pun intended, immersive technology where you would walk into a cave, a small confined space, and there would be projections on the side that would create another atmosphere of a somewhat virtual reality. And the rendering engine for that, she contested, was sexist because the way that it was programmed preferentially referred to male vision. There are two basic ways that humans biologically see depth. And of those two strategies, the way that men tend to see depth, they rely on one strategy more heavily, and that strategy was the one being used in virtual reality rendering systems and three-dimensional engines. So basically, if you create an entire system that preferentially depicts space in a way that is more accessible to one gender, then you have, she argued, these instances of increased nausea in the other gender. So that's why that was kind of her explanation as to why it was easier for females, supposedly in her experience and in her experiment, to experience issues of nausea in experiencing the VR. And of course, this experiment, I have to reiterate, is just it's just kind of a thought experiment at this point. She did the research, but it hasn't been replicated. But it is something that anecdotally continues to come up with VR and is, regardless of your gender, appropriate to the conversation, right? Because if you're arguing about usability and you want to spend 48 hours in varying virtual reality spaces, then nausea um, and experience are going to come up in inevitably. So I just thought we posted on this near the end of the year, and I will, will reference it specifically in the show notes for people who are interested in reading the full report. But I thought it was just a fascinating look at how Again, as we've talked before, like just because it's a virtual reality does not mean that it is free of representational bias, that there is always a way for human difficulties and prejudices to kind of sneak into the code. What's the analog in architecture? Do women architects design in a different way than male architects in terms of accommodating male and female inhabitants in those buildings? I just wonder that that there are more curvy spaces. Yeah, exactly, such. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, the reality is that you know the developers is traditionally a, it's a male operated, a male dominant field, and there's a lot of push to get more women into coding and into developing. And so these labs and uh, de these uh, technology companies are filled with men who are working in that space, and it will change as more women get into it. I also think that's just something they didn't know. Like now they're going to start. They will start experimenting with this because they're seeing that more women, if, if this is true, as I actually didn't even know this, but if they see that more women are experiencing issues with it, then they will tackle that. They just didn't know it because it's, A, so brand new, and it doesn't have the adoption, so there's no stats yet to say there's any kind of majority feeling one way or another. And I assume as they do, but I, I'm not surprised by that just because if you look at the work base, it's heavily male-dominated, which speaks to a bigger issue that has you know, there's work to be done there. It's not only in this in this realm, of course. And and Dana Boyd says she very, very specifically chose the word sexist to put in the headline, you know, to, to spark the conversation. I mean, there are, there the medical field is finally catching up to the fact that if you do a study on how aspirin treats heart attacks in 150 men, you can't apply those same results to women. You just can't. Like the medical field is finally starting to catch up on this and education is talking about it. You know, this is this is an ongoing discussion. And as in any field, if in the virtual reality and the programming fields, we get more women and we get more diverse people of different backgrounds, it's only going to make it better for all of us and more, more inclusive. What I found just so interesting about this study is that the idea of sight actually being hormonally mediated by your gender is not something that I think most people know. And so it's not, exactly. to, it's not to say like, oh, so you're not sexist. It's not saying that the people, that the action is, has any malintent or any intent at all. They just actually see differently. It just actually, yeah, yeah it's kind of a cliche. Yeah, it's kind of a, yeah. And that yeah. There, this is, again, this isn't an indictment. It's really just like, oh, wait, this is what happens. We want to make sure that this can be accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. And women have a fuller, have a bigger field of vision than men do as well. Men are more more straight, like looking ahead. The hunting versus the gathering. Yeah, the hunting versus the gathering, which is not, it's true. <laughs> for real. It's, it's for actually, real. No, it's That's true. where it developed Absolutely. from, is men were going out and hunting. They had to keep their eye on the prize, and women had to, they're all abandoned. They're sitting there raising the kids. They have to make sure they're, they're going to keep everyone alive. So they're constantly looking around. I love that that, I mean, I don't love that that was broken down that way, but it's interesting that it really did impact the way we've, we've evolved. So you're right. It's not sexist. It's just the way, it's interesting to see how people operate differently. Okay, so then for the rest of the podcast, we're all going to try out VR systems and then just emote them by sound for our listeners to be excited right. on behalf of us. And I think that'd be a good way to and end I'm the getting episode. Back into my, I think I'm going to get back into my book, Women Are From Venus. 
feeling validated. Issue num- or edition number 67 <laughs> or so. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, it just goes back to this just continuing to pile knowledge. You know, I didn't know either that there are sex hormones in our eyeballs, basically. Oh, yeah. That was interesting. The most concentrated part in the body other than the gonads. Exactly. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. So, you know, hormonal treatments for people, there's a whole thing on how part of her, Dana's study was with transgender people. And as they go through hormone treatments, how they perceive the world differently. I mean, this is, it is all science. We get very emotional talking about it. I do at least, but it, it definitely does all come back down to science and that this science and research can pile up onto, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It's, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's exciting. Absolutely. I can hear your computer getting all excited about it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a very enlightening conversation and I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to join us today, Rebecca, to talk about virtual reality. And uh, Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's great to have you. Thanks for letting me come into your architecture cult. Yeah. <laughs> One, <laughs> of <us>. One of <laughs> us. Exactly. You're welcome here anytime. All right. Well, so that's it for episode 51. I highly recommend following Rebecca on Twitter especially if you like the kind of stuff we were talking about. She covers a lot of great news in the world of uh, technology and virtual reality and not so much architecture, but, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of a change. And her Twitter handle is Rebecca E. Howard, and we will make sure to include that in our show notes as well. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNext Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcNect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, uh, please consider rating us on iTunes. And uh, make sure to watch out for the next one-to-one episode released each Monday. This Monday, who are we featuring this Monday? We will be speaking to, or by we, I mean myself, (laughs) we'll be speaking to Galen Kranz, who is a professor at the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley. And she's a specialist in the Alexander Technique, which is a kinesthetic educational system. And she is part of our special uh, focus on furniture this February in Arconnect. Yes. And uh, a reminder to submit your articles and furniture projects to us for Furniture February. Information about that can be found online. And we'll include a link to that from the show notes as well. So thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts and Rebecca. And we will talk to you next week.